This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Today's guest needs no introduction. Going into this, I knew that he co-created with the Wachowskis a sorely underrated sensate. May it rest in peace. I knew that he had written an acclaimed run on Thor. I knew that he was a showrunner for the science fiction cult classic, Babylon 5. But did you know that he also wrote scripts for He-Man, She-Ra, The Real Ghostbusters, Superman Earth-1, the 1988 Twilight Zone, and the World War Z movie? Well, in his new book, Becoming Superman, he's going to tell you how he did it, against all odds. Without further ado, J. Michael Straczynski. Um, I want to thank Politics and Prose for inviting me here today. Um, things, I, I, I'm a genre guy. I, I write science fiction and I write comic books and I write you know, cartoons. And, and being invited here, knowing the history of this place, it's like you know, lay priests being called upon to do high mass in front of the Pope on Christmas Day. <laughs> um, and preparing for this, I made the error last night of saying, well, I should look at videos of who else has been here. <laughs> Senators and prior presidents, presidential candidates, and the head of the FBI, and like, oh my God. I, I, I'm going to stop now before I get even more terrified than I already am because I'm not a, a prepared, formal talk kind of guy. I tend to do Q&As at conventions and such. So I'm trying to not be terrified. So I'm getting ready to go, and I'm being delayed by phone calls saying, good luck. And I'm trying to get out the door. And one call comes in and uh, saying, um, so I know you are not very good at public speaking. Um, <laughs> it's okay if, if you're terrified and you suck. It's, it's you know, it's okay because... <laughs> This isn't what you do. Stop talking. Um, I think guillotine is French for stop talking, by the way, for those who are curious about that. And then I'm trying out the door, and another phone call comes and says, did you know that Hillary Clinton and John Dean spoke there? It's like, oh. <laughs> Why are you hurting me? I'm 45 minutes from giving a talk. Um, and it's so odd. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm a genre guy. And I figured when I did my autobiography, I would get attention from the genre press. So when I was, you know, suddenly their book met with reviews from the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. I still, I still can't figure that one out. Um, and, and, and NPR is like, wow. It's like I'm living in somebody else's life suddenly uh, and waiting for them to reclaim it at any moment. Uh, I found out last night, in fact, that the book just hit, debuted on the LA Times bestseller list at number six. I was like, whoa. Not what I expected. You wanted number one. Security. <laughs> My people. Um, it's, it's, you know, the weird thing about being a writer, in addition to like everything, is you often really don't know what you're writing about until after you're done. And you look back, and now that you have the tools you've acquired in the process of writing it, you can look back and see where the pieces are, where the flaws are, what themes you were addressing, and, and that sort of thing. 
And in writing the bio, I, I kind of came to the conclusion you know, and realized for the first time how much the topic of choice has gone through all of my writing, from the comics to Twilight Zone to Babylon 5 to Sensei. Um, Bob Babylon 5 was kind of funny, actually. When I was trying to sell the show, we went to Warner Brothers to, to pitch it. And they said, you know, what's it, what's it about? And I said, well, it's about choice, consequence, and responsibility. The idea that we all have choices to make in life. If you say you don't have a choice, you've made a choice. That those choices have consequences for yourself and for others. And that you must take responsibility for those consequences. And they looked at me the way a cat looks at a doorknob. <laughs> they know it does something. They're just not entirely sure what or how it has to do with the food. Um, but I said, it's okay because those, those, those choices will have impacts on large war and scenarios and battles and lots of action and things blowing up. Okay, all right, we're all right then. <laughs> they said, who are the good guys? Well, we are. Who are the bad guys? Well, we are. <laughs> and we're back to the doorknob. Um, I, th I think the obsession with choice comes from just the family environment living in that I realize is in the book so much. Because in my family... Everyone around me growing up felt that they had no choice but to be what they were and who they were. Uh, my grandfather and my father came out of Russian background and that culture of heavy drinking and violence and abusive behavior and the, the cycle of that and felt that they could be nothing else. I am what I was made to be, which is a good way of ducking the responsibility part because if, it's, if, if, if you are the result of what happened to you, whatever you do isn't really your fault. You can ascribe it to someone else, and you have immunity, you have dispensation, which, of course, is nonsense. My father added a second layer to this, because during uh, the Second World War, as a teenager, he was stuck in the Ukraine for like six years, uh, living at a, my family, my, my, my grandmother, my aunt, and he at a, at a train station uh, with Nazis. They worked with the Nazis. And he acquired a strong interest in the Nazi philosophy. They allowed him the idea of you can do whatever you want with impunity. Uh, they made him, he was a teenager, uh, his own uniform. He used to go out with the soldiers, beating people up on roads, and was, took part in a atrocity. And he acquired a taste for it. But not my fault. That's just what I was exposed to. And then, you know, my fault that I, I like hurting people. My fault I like hitting people. Uh, my fault that I'm anti-Semite and a racist and a misogynist. He was like the sampler platter of evil with my dad. Um, and my mom was in a similar situation. Parenthetical, um, my dad met my mom when she was working as a, a prostitute in the brothel in Vallejo, California. And I apparently was conceived in a brothel. So who my actual father is, I have no idea. If there's any volunteers in the audience, please <laughs> let me know. Um, and she ended up in this trapped in this horrific, abusive relationship with my father. And I would hear as a kid, people say, you know, why don't you just leave? You know, my, my aunt would say, just go. And she, would, she was always saying, I don't have a choice. You know, he may come after me. And if I did leave, what would I do? Where would I go? It's better here. It's better here? And that terrified me to say it's better here because it's, it's easier than making a choice. Um, and the thing is, when you think you have no choice, oddly enough, that gives permission for horrific things to happen within the context of it's, it's not my fault. It's not my choice. I had no choice. Um, so, for instance, um, 
my mom tried to kill me twice because being stuck in this environment made that kind of acting out inevitable. First, I was an infant and tried to smother me. My grandmother caught her in the act and took care of that. And when I was five or six, she tried to throw me off a roof of a building and did. And the reason I'm here now, they got caught a bunch of cables and stuff and wires, and she had to pull me up as people were starting to look what the noise was. Uh, and another inevitability, when you have the idea that there is no choice, uh, there are attempts at suicide. People who get stuck where they think they can't escape will find some other route that doesn't involve choice, but involves succumbing to no choice. And she tried multiple times to commit suicide. She was institutionalized several times. Um, one of the first times when I was, again, like four or five years old, and I began remembering things at a very early age and memorizing them because I just had to sort of figure out how to stay alive in this environment. And my aunt brought me back into the house after she had been returned from the hospital, um, still on medication. So I came in and she was sitting on a couch by the front window, just staring out the window like she'd forgotten what she was about to say, that kind of like trying to grasp onto something, a thought that had gotten away. And she didn't know who I was. She was so medicated, she you know, wouldn't even react to me. But I found if I brought a neighborhood cat with me into the room, she would react to the cat. She would pet the cat. And one day while she was doing this, her hand touched mine by accident. And in my family, there was never any affection, no hugs, no I love yous. There was none of that ever. That was the first time my mom's hand touched me with affection. It wasn't for me. It was for the cat, and I knew that. But I was okay with that. So whenever I would come over, I would bring the cat and turn it this way and that way. And it was scratching the hell on me, but I was trying to get that moment of, of contact. And the interesting thing when you grow up in a family where everyone believes that they have no choice but to be what they are, one of the first things that they do is to make sure that those who come up next are stuck in the same box, that you believe you have no choice. Um, because if you do manage to discover and realize that you have choices, and you make them, and you better your life, it calls into question their entire philosophy, that they couldn't change anything, they couldn't make anything else happen. So they want to make sure that their belief system is not challenged. So in my case, when I was like a kid, they began force-feeding me vodka. Um, it was a very hostile, physically abusive environment where I was not just spanked, but I was beaten literally with fists and with belts and bruises and scars and cuts and, and, and a lot worse. It knocked out twice. Because what happens is that rage feeds the idea that you must take that out on somebody else. It precludes logical, informed decision-making. You're so angry, you're so caught up with it, that you, know, you can't hit the person above you, so you, you punch down. You're hit by someone bigger than you, so you're somebody hitting someone smaller than yourself. And that tends to be how the cycle perpetuates. What my family, I think, didn't count on was science fiction and comic books and Superman and that sort of thing. Because you look at Superman, for instance, as one example, and he's the strongest person in the world. He can do, in theory, anything he wants to do, but he chooses to use that to protect people. He chooses not to be the bully. And I thought, okay, if he can make that choice at age 12, this is how I don't make up, if he can make that choice, I can make that choice. So I made up a list, age 12, of all my father's negative qualities, which are pretty much all he had. And he's a smoker, 
I won't smoke. He's a drinker. I won't drink. He's a wife beater. I won't be. He never keeps his promises. I will. I went right down the list, and you know, I couldn't kill him because flaws. <laughs> Um, but what I could do was to negate him and try and cancel out the evil he brought into the world. Had he been a better person, that would have been a worse one, but he had no good qualities to negate. And that put me on a path of becoming a writer and, and, and doing what I do. And the, the thing that I realized also in the course of writing the book is that this thing about choice does not apply just to me or to my family. It's how systems of control work overall. Um, people who are you know, in jobs where they don't like their job, they hate their job, but they're, you know, but they're constantly being, having their hours screwed around with, their, their rights and, 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 and uh, salaries messed with in the gig economy, so that you can feel like you have no choice, you can't stand up for yourself, because if you do, you might get fired, and then what happens? Relationships, whether they're familial or love relationships, can often be held hostage to terror and the lack of choice. Where as your kid, you're told, you know, wait till dad gets home, you'll be in trouble. And that kind of thing stays with us even when we get older and that person either can't, you know, follow through on the threat or is gone. And when you're in a relationship with someone who, who is abusive, you know, you feel like you can't get out of it. Uh, and the culture and politics in general. I mean, we live inside systems of control that are based upon keeping you in these box of believing you are a cog in the machine, that you can't fight City Hall, um, that you can't change anything. Because if you can't change anything, then you are passive and malleable, which is what they want. Um, I forget who said it, but the, 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 the quote is, every country is three mil short of revolution, which plays out, was it Che? No. Um, it was plays out in two different directions. On the one hand, if you go three days without food, suddenly you have less to lose. And the idea of changing things is not so wild a dream after a while. But the flip side is, as long as you have those three meals, you're less inclined to take action because you're afraid of losing what you have. As long as you have something to lose and the fear behind that, the idea of choosing to rise up or make changes or stand up becomes that much harder. Um, and as I've been giving these talks, uh, what's been interesting is see the degree to which this causes us to fall asleep in our own lives. Where you do the same thing over and over for a long time, and pretty soon you aren't having 10 years of experience, you're having one year of experience 10 times. You know? um, I mean, as kids, we all spontaneously sing, dance, and tell stories until someone, usually an adult, says, you're not good at that, let someone else do that, you're embarrassing yourself, and we unlearn our passion, we fall asleep. Um, I was talking at a convention that long ago and talking about following your passions and not letting that stuff go. And a woman in the audience raised her hand and said, well, what if you don't know what your passions are? I said, you know, I don't. Yes. Let me ask you some questions. Just give me quick answers, whatever I ask you. Uh, milk or dark chocolate? Milk. Okay. Uh, morning person, evening person? Morning. Uh, blue or black? Blue. What do you want to do with your life? And she froze. I said, what just happened? So, well, I, I thought, well, what will my family think of it? Can I make a living at it? But you knew, didn't you? You wanted to paint. Thank you. And we fall asleep. And what I always tell people is, if you could talk to your 17-year-old version of yourself when you were in high school and were confident that when you left that school, you were going to change the world, and tell that person what you were doing now, would that person be pleased or horrified?
And if please, great, leave it alone. But if horrified, then it is incumbent upon you to wake up out of your life and choose something different. Because you do have that power. You do have the potential to change by virtue of making a choice. God knows if I could do it under those conditions, anybody could do it. And when you leave here today, my recommendation is just take five minutes. It's usually we stay asleep until something wakes us up, like a diagnosis, a prognosis, a divorce, a marriage. Something happens traumatic, and we're suddenly awake for the first time ever. But you can choose to make that happen whenever you want and step back and say, is this way the life that I want? Is this the relationship that I want? Is this the job that I want? And don't give me the yeah buts. Just ask, ask the question honestly and answer it honestly and then choose to act accordingly. That is your superpower. That is your superman, your inner superman, if you will. And that is the message in the gospel that I bring. Thank you for coming to the services today. <laughs> we'll be turning our attention to Exodus chapter 33, which, by the way, is the first recorded case of someone being mooned. I hear skepticism and the laughter. It's true. It just, God was speaking to Moses, and Moses wanted to see God. God said, if you saw me, you would, be, you would destroy you. And he said, I will cover your eyes, and you can see my hindquarters as I pass by. Or my back part, different translation. God mooned Moses. I think that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I am pleased to uh, be able to welcome back to the bookstore Alexandra Fuller to talk about her latest memoir, Travel Light, Move Fast. Uh, a continuation of sorts of the family history memoirs that began with the critically acclaimed Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, uh, chronicling her upbringing on a farm in war-torn Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. Uh, whereas other works have spotlighted her childhood, her mother, uh, and the effects of war, this latest piece brings into focus the incomparable and fast-moving life of her father, Tim Fuller. Uh, beginning with his death a few years ago, the memoir is framed along the advice that Tim gives over the course of his life, uh, from his black sheep exile from England to starting a family and growing bananas uh, through many Southern African nations in the midst of colonial revolutions. Uh, moving through the grief and the aftermath of her father's life, um, these lessons come to embody the resilience that is often necessary in this world. Uh, with striking, beautiful prose and her signature talent for effort effortlessly blending timelines across the decades, uh, this book is, quote, a celebration of the man whose profound influence helped shape her own worldview. So please join me in welcoming Alexandra Fuller to Politics and Prose. I love this bookstore. Thank you for existing, politics and prose. Um, the life of the mind and the space to safely, um, I mean, if you've heard me talk before, go to sleep for the next couple of minutes because I say this every time and every time with more and more urgency. We have to remember what freedom of speech is, what it costs, and how to do it. <laughs> and that doesn't mean getting the most likes and it doesn't mean not um, offending people, but it does mean in, in I think the most profound way understanding that the opposite and equal reaction to freedom of speech is having the courage and dignity to listen to one another and to, um, you know, 
assume that the other person is using the dignity of their intelligence and speaking from there. And so having a responsible speech and a responsible listening and dignity and decorum, we are so losing decency in our conversation and we're so losing the ability to disagree well um, on which our freedom is actually based. And I know this because I came from first Rhodesia where they had uh, censorship since 1964. And then uh, Robert Mugabe, not a fan of freedom of speech. Um, most uh, most of the countries I lived in, you know, there was a dictator in Malawi. He really wasn't a fan either. And so there has been this way in which I could not really imagine what it would be like. I mean, the states really invented freedom of speech. It was like, that is what you're known for. That and Michael Jackson. Like, if you're Zambian, <laughs> those are the two things you knew. Um, and we were socialist and like, we were really kind of cut off. So we really assumed that in the States, this is what we were taught, some of the streets were paved with gold and everyone else was heroin addicts. And this, this was confirmed for me when I met my American River Guide husband who came out to Zambia to raft the Zambezi River. And you know how we give each other shorthand, but it, it, you, you know, your shorthand doesn't translate, by the way. So you can tell people by shorthand, like where you went to school and then expect someone to be impressed. But if they're from Zambia, they don't care if you went to Harvard. That doesn't mean anything unless they've seen Legally Blonde. And so the... <laughs> So when my husband told me that he was mainline Philadelphia, I was like, oh, one of the original heroin addicts. This is going to go, this is going to go well. It's good. With my alcoholic family, like surely there's more dysfunction. Then you're just not a heroin addict for free. It's usually because you're, you know, insane or racist or both. And so I thought, well, this is going to work out. Um, and so then we got married and we moved to the States and I had freedom of speech and I was so excited. And I hobbled back from every dinner party because um, I'd been, you know, kicked in the shins by my now not surprisingly ex-husband. <laughs> Um, because you'd be like, just because you've got freedom of speech doesn't mean you need to exercise it the entire time. Like those of us who've had it for a few generations are a bit more tasteful with it. He's like, you're more like the nouveau riche of freedom of speech. In 2000, when I became a U.S. citizen, due to some unfortunate election results that coincided with my belief that had been sort of seared into me by South African politics that was one man, one vote. I didn't understand the um, corrupt American electoral system. So I thought, well, if I become a US citizen and live in Wyoming, I, I'm a game changer, um, which, you know, obviously I'm not, but I believed that briefly enough to become a US citizen. Um, and I am outspoken about my country of that am I that I've moved to and um I didn't want to get thrown out so you have to sort of belong here and so I went through the whole rigmarole and I just want to say that if you're of Scottish Irish English descent let's say and you go to have your interview and you get to the question where it says is there a history of family insanity I, if you were born here and you're of Scottish, Irish, English descent, you're lucky that question doesn't happen as you're a fetus. Because if you come here as an adult, you, you might have to lie. Um, and then I got sworn in at uh, Kemera, which was used to be the capital of Wyoming. And it was, the, it's, so the, the, it was me and a whole bunch of people from El Salvador, Mexico, Guatemala. 
And the poshest person, the, the, the most elevated person they could find to do the swearing-in ceremony was the dentist from next door. So they yank him and, and he gave the most moving speech. We were all sobbing because it is something to give up your motherland. Like I think it is you know, deep in our exceptionalism as humans. I and mean, people talk about American exceptionalism and American think Americans believe they're exceptionally great. That's actually true of all people everywhere. We as Zimbabweans think God like made the country for us and then made us special to live there. Like that is sort of how it goes. So there's a kind of heartbreak to admit, no, I need to move here. And so you're so what the dentist said, and this was very true, is you're coming here, every immigrant comes with a hunger. Whether it's a hunger to, you know, make a living or a hunger to have freedom to um uh, you know, to worship as they as they like, or and for me, it was freedom of speech. But this is the thing that if I give this up, I give up me. That that cannot and shouldn't be taken away. But I notice it being eroded and self eroded. Most Americans take the fifth in a way. I mean, most Americans have gotten to the point where we self censor, and that is um, sort of the ultimate endpoint of censorship when you become afraid of speaking out because you're afraid of the consequences um, online. You're afraid of how you're being tracked. But if we all speak out and we speak out, you know, responsibly, we can't be stopped. Um, and so I am so grateful for this bookstore for managing to keep the doors open through thick and thin and for allowing that that this space such and I'm grateful for you uh, to you for sitting here and listening um, to me speak. Okay, those of you who've heard me speak again can wake up. Um, I write because I didn't have a choice because my mother was a very glamorous East African, you know, raised in Kenya. And she uh, sort of uh, under the shadow of Isaac Dennison and, and, and uh, Elspeth Huxley and whatever. And I, I think she thought I'm just as biography worthy as these other bloody women. And the only thing she hadn't done was fly an airplane. So she added that to her list. She found someone in Lusaka who claimed to be um, a flight instructor. It turns out he wasn't. But she did actually manage to fly solo um, with the flight instructor in a little tin hut on a friend's airstrip screaming, come back, come back, come back. And my mother singing, fly me to the moon. And, uh, and, and she had an, in, she was too lazy to write her own biography, but understandably it's a lot of work. So she thought, well, I'll just skip it and get one of my children to do it. So when she was pregnant with my older sister, she read her the entire works of Shakespeare in the womb and the hopes that Vanessa would just be born a literary genius. And she wasn't, she was, she was very bored by it. She can't even really get, um, she, Vanessa is willfully illiterate. I mean, she won't eat, like, vocabulary is even a bit of an effort for her. So she has astonished a few people by mixing up hitchhiker and hijacker. <laughs> and when my dad um, was 69, he said, right, that's it, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick the bucket, I'm not going to... I'm not going to bat some other chap's innings. That's not cricket. I've done my three score year and ten, so I'm going to snuff it and very soon. And, um, you know, we were very sad about this. And he said, you should just, I'm pretty flammable by now. You should just be able to throw a match in my direction. I imagine <laughs> I'll explode immediately. And um, and he took us all out to the, to the baobab tree where he wanted his ashes 
uh, scattered and we were all you know, moved and but sort of startled by this. Um, it's not that we're not a maudlin family. It's usually we're drunk when we're maudlin and this was all happening quite sober. Um, and so Vanessa, my, my sister, was just like, oh, God, Bobo, when dad dies, mum's going to be a puddle of alcoholic, that'll, we'll lose her. And I'm going to be a mess because it's dad and you're going to have to do the urology. <laughs> so clearly if, if there was going to be a writer in the family, there was no choice. It was going to be me. And I, uh, and my mother made sure during um, the Rhodesian War, um, there is a program on television right now about the British and Aden. It's really grim and gruesome and people are forever getting blown up and they're forever having affairs and the whole lot of them drink like fish. And my mother watches this with much shock and she goes, and the children are forever getting kidnapped and shot and what have you. And she goes, who would move to the front line of a war with small children and then drink like fish and carry on? As I was like... I mean, I guess after five memoirs, we really all do have our blind spots. So is she reading this thing and going, this is not me? Although my... Um, so she... Uh, during the... We did live on the front line of the war. My parents, my, my uh, father was reasonably innocent, I suppose. He came out to Kenya to see a giraffe um, because it was the days when you could sort of do that if you were British. The whole empire was still sort of stained in your memory, vaguely pink, most of it except for Germany. It was just a black blot somewhere in Europe. You didn't go there. And other than that, the whole globe felt like it was yours. And um, my mother had been raised um, in Kenya. And then they moved to Rhodesia very deliberately to avoid being in a majority-run African country. And so that really, in a way, um, it, like if anyone says, well, so what kind of parents do you have? I mean, you do want to say raising your child as white supremacist is baseline abusive. But what is... <laughs> to put it mildly, but what is weird about that is, of course, you love your parents, you love your community. And we didn't use those words in Rhodesia. We didn't say we were white supremacists. We didn't have to, because if you are it, you don't have to say it. I mean, much like the US today, you just are it. And then that's how, I mean, you don't have to sort of announce yourself as white supremacists, because that sounds like the next thing you're going to do is be wearing a white sheet. And we weren't that. I mean, you can't really use your Uzi submachine gun very well if you're wearing a white sheet and it doesn't camouflage perfectly. There we were on the front line. When I was six and my sister was nine, we were given an Uzi submachine gun um, in, in the very likely event that there was an, uh, 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 an attack on our farm. Um, and we were given the target of a black man to shoot at. And we were shown the difference between shooting to kill and shooting to maim. And that what you were really aiming to do here was shooting to kill. And so you're six and nine. And this is a massive loss of innocence. I mean, that is an erosion of your childhood that you that is worked, that is a labor to get back to. Um, it's a labor to get back to the wisdom of childhood after you've had that kind of shattering. Um, but part of it was the Rhodesian who, I mean, as I've now hopefully painted a portrait were fairly hardcore-ish people. Even they thought that it was a bit much to send kindergartners over minefield-infested roads from these remote farms into the 
um, cities and towns to go to boarding school. So what they did for little kids, kindergarten kids, was they had your mother teach you at home, your correspondence school, which I'm sure really worked out well for some kids. But I had my mother, so she would get this packet from what was then now... Harari, then Salisbury, and she'd rifle through it and she'd go, mathematics, throw that out. She goes, darling, you can always pay someone to count for you. Now, what are you going to write about? And then she would have a biography-worthy day and I would write the stories and they would say, we were asking for a non-fiction account of your week. And I'd be like, what was? Um, and so I really didn't have a choice. I couldn't count. I could only write. And if you met my mother, I mean, bear in mind, she is... I mean, she's mentally ill. She, she says everyone, I actually have a certificate to prove how mentally ill I am. And she, you know, I mean, she drinks a serious amount. And the woman that is terrible with an Uzi submachine gun, she gets that thing going, all the trees, the leaves are gone. So you don't, I mean, you're just hoping, like if she wasn't aiming for you even, this is a dangerous place to be. So of course I was a writer. I mean, I wasn't going to not be a writer if that's what she wanted me to be. Um, and I wrote 10 novels and they were all wildly rejected. My agent fired me. And she said, you do, you have maybe have a little bit of talent, but you don't have a story. And I thought, well, I mean, actually. And so I wrote Don't Let's Go to the Dogs Tonight, the, the first sort of book that got me out, mostly so that my children would know, because I assumed they wouldn't. This was um, nearly 20 years ago, that they would never know racism as I had uh, had known and 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 uh, and and experienced and acted on it. I mean, they they would never know that. I assumed they would never know a time like we now know in this country. Um, they would never know a weekend like we had last weekend. Um, and and I also felt like you know they weren't going to know my parents the way I knew them. They wouldn't know this country the way I knew them. So I really wrote. But I wrote it for them. So it was sort of a fairy tale version of my childhood. You don't want your kids to know everything. At any rate, my mother got a hold of this book, obviously. I mean, kind of unavoidably. And I, um, she was absolutely furious and talked to me for four years. But her response was, you make me sound like a racist alcoholic. <laughs> I said, but and your objection to that? Um, and I, it turned out that what I was doing and have done in every subsequent book is that I have looked around on the bookshelf. I love books. I mean, it's, what, it's, one, it's one of the greatest gifts my mother gave me was um, when she heard that a family had been um, attacked, a white family, a white farming family had been attacked and had fled their farm overnight. My mum was the first person on the farm, not to make sure everyone was okay, but to raid their library and pick up their animals. So she would come back with a Land Rover packed with books and dogs and say, oh, the Hamilton Smiths had to leave, but they've got a fabulous collection. <laughs> So we were always overrun with other people's dogs and their books. And we travel, I mean, that's what we took with us. That and the Le Creuset pots, they survived everything. I mean, she was such a sort of unbelievably resilient character. And, and all through this, she also lost three children, but almost didn't skip a beat. Um, and that was astonishing to me as I grew up and had three children, one of whom is here tonight, my youngest. Um, and so there really was this way in which, you know, she had, she was such a mixture. And I think that is what is such a confusing thing. If you grow up in a racist family, as a lot of white settler Americans do, as a lot of white settlers in my part of the country do, you grow up with that racism. But in that racism is also the love that you have. This is your family. This is who you eat with. We all hear about this 
this um you know this this racist uncle everyone has at the Thanksgiving table. Where is he? I want to meet this guy because he's everyone's uncle, and I think that's that is well, well. We just tolerate him, and oh, you know, Uncle blah blah. After he's had a few not safe in taxis or corridors, so we have this his. We have, I think, a history of not talking about the people in our family who make us squirm and uncomfortable. Um, and it turns out I am the one in the family who makes everyone squirm and uncomfortable because. <laughs> I am. I refused to follow the dominant narrative, and part of that was looking on the shelves, my mother's extensive collection of books, any bookshelf, and seeing what other white settler writers from you know Kenya and and Africa were writing about, and not seeing the neurosis of racism, not seeing how amputated the spirituality is of people who have decided to ignore the, the, the spirituality, dignity, and humanity of, of the six million people living around them, of your, the, say, at most 100,000 white people living in Rhodesia and making sure the whole country runs for you. And so when people say, oh, Zimbabwe, what a tragedy, it's really collapsed since colonial days. Well, the country was structured to support 100,000 people, not 6 million people. That infrastructure was just for a tiny percentage of elites. It remains that way. Nothing's changed. It's just we're all so sort of... Uh, um, I think terrified of talking about uh, about you know the transition from colonialism to to freedom and what that means and the hangover of all that violence. What is the half life of all that violence of all that sort of racism? And so I wrote, um, "Don't let's go to the dogs tonight" as my answer to you know out of Africa. And then I wrote every other book as my answer to when I got to Wyoming, I wrote a book about a cowboy, a real, you know, it was a nonfiction book because I, the cowboys that I was meeting and the myth of the cowboy were two entirely different people. I was discovering our cowboys in Wyoming very rarely move cattle. They might do it once in a while, but it's more of a hobby. They might get called if they have horses to move cattle once or twice a year, but mostly they're working on oil fields. Wyoming is, is majority of its economy is oil and gas. But we say we're the cowboy state. We're so dishonest. And, I, and I'm always amazed that all my reviewers say, with piercing honesty, lacerating honesty. I'm like, well, so is everyone else just lying through? Yes, turns out they are. And that is, I think, a very white settler thing. We lie by omission. We lie by silence. We lie by collusion. We just straight out lie. We have a great example in this town. We lie and lie and lie. And we are terrified of truth because the truth is supposed to sting and hurt and make us change the course of the way we are. I mean, not always, it hasn't worked in my family. When my father died um, a few years ago, 2015, and when I got the call to say, you know, your father's very sick uh, with pneumonia in Budapest. First of all, I was like, wait, Budapest? And also secondly, wait, pneumonia? Um, I knew he would be dying because I'd had so many other calls previous to that saying, you know, your dad's been shot, ran over, sculpted, I don't know, hijacked. He's had malaria and bulhazia and every other thing. And I was like, well, he's, he's, he's going to, if you can, you know, he's going to survive all of that. But pneumonia in Budapest, 
that's weird enough. This is going to kill him. And so I was on the next flight there. And I got to spend 12 days with my dad as he died. Um, and it was such an education because he really believed in suffering well. Um, and he had... He he really admired the way Southern Africans um, suffered. 500 years of practice, those poor bastards. They're really good at it. He didn't think the English knew how to suffer except the Queen. She can take it on the chin all right, but the rest of them, bunch of bloody wimps. Italians always cry for their mothers, he said. And he said, the Americans you can't tell because it's all just so loud. Um, <laughs> but he really had by then suffered like a Southern African. And so this book, as much as anything, started out because I could nowhere on the shelves find a book on grief that was also a celebration of what a long... Well, he didn't have a very long life, but he, he filled every inch of it as if he did. He was 75 when he died. Um, but, you know, what it means to erode yourself and that that erosion is helped by suffering. I mean, I think that some people can get to an erosion of the essence of themselves without having to lose three children and every farm they ever try and farm on and, and sort of their sense of status and, and everything else that had come from him as he had sort of eroded from, you know, a voluntarily white supremacist volunteering to fight for Ian Smith to someone who lived in a, um, in a village of 60,000 Tonga and very rarely saw other white settlers. And if he did, sort of drove past them. He absolutely hated aid workers. Anyone here who's an NGO, don't, my, yeah, my dad would just drive off the road trying to hit them on his car. They'd be wobbling off on their bicycles. Bloody NGOs, why aren't they going to dig latrines where they'd come from? And so he'd be yelling and my mother would be holding on. Tim, Tim, pretending she was hating every minute of it. Just delighted. Vanessa and I saying our prayers in the back of the car. My father always felt like it took agency away and he was, he was all about self-agency. He also hated Bill Gates. He had no idea who he was, but he just thought Bill Gates had invented the computer and his computer had died uh, or it was very difficult to start the damn thing. And it was about 16 years old, the computer, but it lived in its little box, you know, its little, its little styrofoam box. He brought it down to the pub once a week. Everyone knew all my dad's passwords because he couldn't remember them. So his bank and everything else. And then, and then when it died, he had to take it to, to someone in Chirundu Market to fix it. Mr. Mwalabo managed to fix the computer. So he was like, Mr. Mwalabo versus Bill Gates. Yes, this is it. And then he heard Bill Gates wanted to do circumcision in Zambia and of all places, Swaziland, to for, I think to prevent the spread of HIV AIDS. My father was horrified. Oh my God, Shupi, he says to the barman at the bottom of the farm. Bill Gates is coming for our family jewels. Run for the hills, run for the hills. You wouldn't trust a man whose computer breaks after 16 years anywhere near your tackle, would you? <laughs> so there was this, I mean, incredible irreverence, the way he sort of misanthropically misunderstood the world so that he understood it perfectly. And as he lay dying, it was a, uh, he hadn't said anything to mum. He had gone to Budapest because it turned out my father adored Paris. And somebody had told him that Budapest was the poor man's Paris. So as a surprise, he had a reasonable banana crop. There had only been some disease. They off, off they went to Budapest. And mum had been having so much fun going up the Danube and showing off her very good legs and all the blue pools they have. She's got, she likes to tell everyone, I've got fabulous legs for a riding boot. And uh, so he quite didn't want to ruin her fun. But then apparently one night at supper after about three nights there, he's, he suddenly said, 
the waiter's a spy. And then mum said, and he collapsed like a souffle. I had to ask the spy to call an ambulance. I said, wait, you mean the waiter? She said, oh, Bobo. Very difficult to have an emergency in a foreign language. So, um, in this sweltering heat, absolute heat wave, there are also the streets absolutely clogged with Syrian and Afghani refugees. I mean, the Budapest train stations closed down, the roads are shut down. It is a, it's a city under siege and my dad is dying in a crumbling communist era hospital that the elevator hadn't worked for years. The stairs were sort of grooved and, and the oncology patients drifted around the weedy um, grounds. With, there were about a hundred stray cats all smoking cigarettes with their little things. And uh, mum befriended the cats. She kept taking dad's trays of food down for the cats. Well, he's dying. He doesn't need it. And feeding the cats, I mean, she's nothing if not pragmatic. And she kept saying, state of the art, this place, isn't it? And the staff, I mean, the doctors and everything were useless. They didn't care. They all went off water skiing. The doctor sunburned himself so badly. He had blisters. It's not surprising dad died. Um, and he, but he, uh, and he, he, when I got there, he had been strapped to the bed. Um, he was um, restrained. He had what handcuffy things um, on the bed. And the nurse explained to me in her terrible English, which I, I could, that he, um, he had tried to punch her. And I said, he's sort of a gentleman. That's surprising. Why well, I was trying to give him an enema. Oh, I, I said, well, you know, an Englishman's bottom is his castle. And to which she looked very surprised. I mean, clearly she wasn't, he didn't look at all like an Englishman by the time he was on his deathbed. He was so sunburned, he was the color of wood. Um, but we did take the restraints off after that. I said, as long as you don't go anywhere near, you know, we're going to be all right. Um, and so he managed to, I, and he was so strong. I mean, he had been farming 12 years before he died. He had been walking around the farm. Um, you know, always inspecting everything. And so it really was a lesson on how to die, how to march into death. Like once you know it's coming, not wait around and hope there's another treatment and put up with an enema and do, no, that's it. You just, and somebody who had fought with him in the war said, yes, he was terrifying as a soldier. First of all, he was an awful shot. And secondly, he always lengthened his stride when other people would have found it more prudent to tiptoe. Um, and so once he died, um, uh, I mean, it was a hilarious thing. You, only my parents could make death very funny. And so my mother goes up to the doctor. She she had Budapest. They smoked like chimneys. There had been this heat wave. So I had shoved mum in the bedroom, but she had stopped being able to breathe. She's asthmatic. And I thought it'd be just like me to go over to Budapest to help one parent die and accidentally kill the other. So I was like, right, you stay in the bedroom. So when dad died... Uh, you know, we had to break into the ICU. My mother goes, watch this communist era doors. This is my forte. So she sort of smashes her way into the ICU. I had made the mistake of complaining about the treatment. And after that, visiting hours were changed and the doors were locked. And I had to get locked in there to be with my father. My mom said, you're such a pest and you're so bossy. I'm not surprised they tried to lock you out. But anyway, she was squeezing and massaging the doctor. Oh, thank you so much for everything you've done. She's got a grip. I mean, this woman can ride terrifying horses. So, and this poor guy was, you know, sweating and tears were spurting out of his eyes. Oh, no, no, it's not your fault. Don't worry. I mean, he should have died ages ago the way he lived. We're not at all upset, are we, Boba? No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I don't, don't, you shouldn't take this personally. Anyway, we left. I go, Mom, he was, he's not sad dad died. He's got right about... Five, third degree sunburn. She goes, oh, 
well, should have said something. I'm like, well, it didn't seem something you slip into conversation at that moment. Um, so this is, this is right after that. There is a difference I found between a hospital housing your sick and one in which you imagine vividly your dead as lying, tagged like you see in movies on a slab in the basement mortuary. Timothy Donald Fuller, born unremarkably March 9, 1940, Northampton, England. Died improbably September 4, 2015, Pest, Hungary. Until yesterday, I'd viewed this rambling, ugly hospital as a temporary holding station in which my father was serving out an inevitable sentence in a hot, strange, sad city with me as witness. But the fact of his dying had changed the shape of everything. Now the building was a monument to his death, dad's final breaths taken here, his soul untangling from flesh within these walls. His determinedly good death, his noble suffering, had visited grandeur where previously there'd been only a kind of surrendered sadness, a rotation of bodies washing in and out of view. I had had too much of a colonial upbringing and my father had been too English for Rupert Brooke not to tumble unbidden into my head. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. But neither my father nor I was so deluded to think an Englishman's blood was enough to stain the soil of any nation richer, or that dying somewhere as a soldier or a civilian or a refugee or a tourist made that land yours no matter how much you had suffered on it or for it. Nothing seemed that certain anymore. Such claims were fighting words, words to get lost by, and certainly not the reassurance I was seeking. Still, a few days ago, back when he had still been laboring toward death and shouting instructions in his morphine haze to Mr. Kalusha, the farm's driver, to hurry home before dark, I had given semi-serious thought to getting my father in the back of a rental van and making a break for it with him, driving east from Hungary, then south to Gibraltar. I'd have opened the van doors, propped my father up as close as I could to the strait. On a clear day, he might have seen Africa one last time. I'd have fed him brand he'd have died in mum's arms. Or he'd have died in no one's arms, that's someone else's family, but at least mum and I could have been fussing with the picnic basket, cursing the lid to the thermos, fighting off the troop of Barbary macaques in the vicinity. He might have died then gazing south from Europe toward his beloved farm, a familiar cheerful chaos in the background, mum shrieking at some monkeys. That would have been a fathomable death for me, a more coherent inscription in my mind. Timothy Donald Fuller, born unremarkably March 9, 1940, England, died within sight of Africa, September 4, 2015. But it doesn't work like that, of course. Death comes when it comes and when it comes, it doesn't wait around for any man, wife, parent or daughter to announce his or her readiness for it. There is no planning for the perfect death, or rather there is, but there's no planning for the perfect aftershock of a loved one's death. The assault of it is always new, always each grief finding a new wormhole into our hearts. Like all life's shocks, beginning with our own unasked for births, there's no guarding against the shock of sorrow, the shock of losing parts of the self. And death, like birth, afterward everything's a first, a long pile-up of firsts. The first decision I'd be making on Dad's departed behalf the first true uncertainty about who I'd become with his death, because until now, whatever else I'd been, I'd always also been Tim Fuller's daughter, 
And that had really meant something one or two places. The Chirundu Market, for example, where Dad did all his farm shopping. He'd be sorely missed there. Also the little safari lodge on the Kafui River. They'd notice he was gone. Of course, Boss, Boss Shupi, who knew all his passwords at the pub, would look for him in vain every morning at 11 for the remainder of the dry season. And they'd never forget my father at Huey's pub and grill in Lusaka, where in recent memory, dad had set his trousers on fire, dancing on the table over wilting paraffin candles. I was led astray by a Malawian waiter, my father explained in his defense. Three Irish whiskies after a fulsome dinner. Of course I got a bit overexcited. What I wasn't anticipating when I lost my father, which was an easy grief, and I think this is true in a lot of families, was that I would lose a lot with him, that my relationship with my mother would become fractured to the point of, of irre irreparable and, and with my sister, and that then I would lose the farm and that everything that I had identified, this grief upon grief, and I was, and I, you know, in a tiny, weeny way, began to feel what it must be like to be a refugee, to lose, you know, land and family and, and what it really is. I mean, in minuscule and sort of um, a, a homeopathic drop lit of it. And then um, not quite three years after my father died, my son died, suddenly in his sleep, 21 years old, and, uh, in, 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 you know, just an absolute shock. I mean, there was no sort of real warning that this was going to happen. Um, and I had just written that part of the book. And so I now had the rest of the book to write with the knowledge that there are griefs and griefs. And that grief is the gift <laughs> that we're given. That suffering is the gift we're given to erode our egos because any amount of physical attachment, any amount of you know, sort of material um, holding on uh, was too unbearable for me. The only way to survive this was to dissolve myself in the vat of grief that is so painful um, and to get down to the essence of who I was, which is, of course, what my father had done. And I think that, you know, when your father dies, you lose your history, and that's okay. But when your son dies, you lose your future, and you're left just in the agonizing present, in the incredibly painful now, in which every moment is a moment in which you have to reckon with who you are. And that is all you are. And that goes on and on. I mean, that is what grief is. And as I became more and more acquainted with, you know, the cycles of grief, which are, as we all know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and finally acceptance. What I realized is that most of the people around me seem to be stuck in one of those phases of grief. I mean, everyone I know seems to be in some denial. We're very angry as a nation. We're bargaining as hell. I mean, we're bargaining our future away. We have all the evidence necessary to tell us that we can't keep living as we are or we won't have a planet for our children to inherit, let alone for us to stand on. Um, and depression, I mean, opioid epidemic, that would seem that we might be a bit depressed. And finally, that if you arrive at acceptance, um, the amazing part of that, if you can accept your son's death, what is it that you can't accept? would be my question. And the solace that I received wasn't from my family. They didn't communicate with me after my son died. My mother sent um, 
a message through the farm secretary about a week after my son died with her sincere condolences. I mean, that kind of coldness. I hate grief, she said. I don't want to go through it. I didn't do it myself, which may explain the amount she drinks and her madness. I can see that. Um, because before now, this was always a mystery. And it was always the excuse that my parents had that, okay, they lost three children and that for that to have happened, you can pretty much behave however you want. I've lost one. That's not true. No amount of loss gives you the right to behave however you want. I mean, I cannot imagine what refugees go through. I can't imagine that amount of grief. And yet still, you have a kind of divine contract to become the essence of yourself, not just become, you know, the totalitarian, the total totalness of your of your losses. Um, and what really saved me after my son died, I mean, after my father died, there's sort of a collective shrug. So what the guys, you know, whatever your father, you're next in line. But the, in white settler culture anyway, there is no instruction about how to do this. Even in our religious structure, I'm Episcopalian because I have a complicated relationship with the God in this country that we have decided to weaponize. I find that, uh, you know, I mean, he's a, the God in this country has become a weapon of destruction, not a, a divine presence. Uh, but I'm Episcopalian because they're polite enough to barely mention God and you know, sometimes say one or two things about Jesus. And we're a tiny, you know, I live in Wyoming. There's a tiny Jewish community and they share our chapel um, for their services. And so they throw a sheet over Jesus when they've got this. So sometimes you go into our chapel and there's Jesus, you know. And I, and that's, I think Jesus would be fine with that. And, but we don't have a, a sort of spiritual tradition to get us through this. And, and um, my friend, who's also a writer, Iris Mwanzak, who's here, reminded me, and she sent me a piece of writing in which she mentioned the tradition of Mzimu, which is where when somebody dies, the rest of your community howl and scream and ululate and throw themselves on the ground and roll around because, as Iris so beautifully explained in her book, it is understood that to separate the bonds of love between people who are that connected, it's too painful and difficult for one person to do. Your community supposed to do it with you. But in white settler community, people look at you and say, oh my God, I can't even imagine. I don't know how you get through this. And then they flee. And it is on top of the hardest thing you've ever done. Therefore, also the loneliest. And it was the people from home and the, and the thank God, I mean, that I had spent some time on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation um, talking to Lakota and seeing how many similarities there are between, say, the Moshona, Chewa, and Lakota traditions that in indigenous culture, and I'm not an expert on indigenous cultures everywhere, but it seems to me that there is this lively communication with the dead. Your dead aren't dead, they're your ancestors. And so when your father becomes your ancestor, it seems to me an invitation for you to become an elder. When your child becomes an ancestor, it is an invitation to become more than an elder. It's an invitation to become, to return to the wisdom of childhood. Without prejudice, with wonder and astonishment, and to have joy and acceptance. And the most sustaining and beautiful message that I got after my son died was um, from a school friend of Iris and mine, actually from Zimbabwe, who wrote, 
we're devastated with you. Not, you know, you're on your own here. We're devastated with you. The first one is the hardest. Reminding me that where we come from, it's common to lose more than one child. And that that erosion of self, you know, when people say, I went to safari in Zimbabwe, they have nothing, but they're so cheerful and resilient. They didn't wake up like that. People don't wake up like that. It is work to be cheerful and resilient. And that that's where it comes from, being bathed in this vat of suffering and coming out with such a, I have an enormous ego, so I've had to go through more rounds of grief than probably anyone else to get here. But I mean, you have to have a huge ego to write five memoirs, let's face it. I said, I put the me into memoir and my, my 13-year-old daughter said, no, you didn't, mum, you put the moi into it. <laughs> I'm going to end it there so we have five minutes for questions. Thank you. I'm so sorry I went over and left uh, so little time for all of you. Hi. Hi. I'm a great admirer of your, is it on, of your works, but I always, want, always wondered. Was it on? Because he said he was a great admirer of my works. <laughs> when your family decided to leave Kenya, uh, Kenya and move to Rhodesia, did it cross your mother and father's mind that what happened in Kenya was going to help happen in the other countries and they were just like a step ahead and that they, that, that it was inevitable. And my second question is totally different. Oh God, I'm never gonna remember two. Okay. Uh, can, I, can I answer that one? Yes. Please. Because that brings me back to this issue of white settler denial. It's, it's un, it is unprocessed stages of grief. And I think what happens in, listen, I have now decided that it, if, if it is good for indigenous communities and women, it's probably not part of, uh, dominant white settler culture, and grief is good for women. It is practiced rigorous, rigorously and, and sort of condemned. You know, I mean, we, can you imagine if we had a funeral and flung ourselves on the ground? And I mean, we would, be, we would be better people, I can tell you that, but it would be so frowned upon at a wasp funeral. I mean, my mother would never get over it. <laughs> Second question is, I don't know whether you still live in a yurt, Yes. But can you tell us about why you decided to live there in Wyoming and what it's like? Well, so after my son died, um, the I have a sheep wagon and a yurt, actually. I'm quite posh. And I... Um, the thing that absolutely stayed with me, I, uh, and it's in, in, in the book, my father died um, close to a full blood moon. And um, after he died, mum said, uh, you know, it was a very good death and he, he died under a blood moon and that's very auspicious. And then she gave me the whole lecture she always has on new moons and you should turn money over in your pocket because it'll make you rich. I mean, it has not worked for her, but I'll pass that on in case it does. Um, I think capitalism in general doesn't say anything about the new moon. But it, there is, and this is true of, of, say if you're out on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, the Lakota greeting the morning star every morning, you are not separate, literally not separate from your environment. Like the universe hangs over you as like a cradle. You know, you're in it, you're of it. There is no separation. That has been the biggest fallacy. And it's why we're at each other's throats. We have this idea that we're all supposed to be making it alone. It's absolute rubbish. You can't make it alone. And it's a fallacy that you 
did. You didn't make it here alone. Trust me, you didn't. And so this way, but there is an incredible longing and loneliness that comes with the loss of a child. So I dragged my sheep wagon up into the Wind River Mountains and slept there. Because at least if I couldn't sleep, and you can't in that kind of grief, the moon was my constant companion. She traveling over me every night, the stars, the fact that I was near running water, that I needed to build a fire in the stove every night of my little sheep wagon or I'd freeze to death, that every time I stepped out of the sheep wagon, I stood on earth. And so I was in the elements. I was in rain and earth, ground and fire and water all the time. And since that's what I'm made of and fear is made of, Fuller is made of and my father and Hitler and everybody else, every dog and cat and fiber and being. It doesn't, you are, you couldn't be less alone. It's a cacophony of ancestors and possibility out there. And as one goes through, as I went through these stages and stages of grief, because you don't just go through one cycle, not for your father, not for your son, I mean, not for your son. I'll be doing this till I die. What you find at the essence of yourself, where there is no pain, where there is relief, what you find there is God. And it turns out you and God and the universe and my son and your sons and daughters and Hitler, it's all in there. I mean, it's all in there. It's all in there. There was nothing to hate in the first place. There was only something to love. And that profound sense of being unlonely is why I live uh, in a sheep wagon or a yurt. And actually the clue that I got, um, even before I moved into a yurt, was I spoke to, I was talking to a Lakota elder who said, when you live in four walls with a square thing above you, there's no room for the soul and the spirit to sort of spiral and for the wind to shake you awake. There is this way that you've chopped yourself off from the world. So to live in a yurt is to live befriended always, always. And, you know, there's going to be a time when, yeah, I, I, I'm going to be very old living in a yurt. And that will be good for me too because I'll be having to carry my own wood up there. And, you know, it stops me from separating myself too much from a world which is already riven with separation. And it stops me getting above myself. You really can't. If you live in a yurt, like you just, there's no getting, like every day is a humiliation. <laughs> More questions. Well, I would love to write a novel. I've thought of the title, Ignorance is Bliss, Wyoming, about a town called Ignorance is Bliss. Very difficult to be born in ignorance, but you can easily die there, is my opening line. Um, because, you know, when I was up in the mountains grieving, I looked like, I mean, of course I'd lost my mind. I'm running around in a kakoi, if anyone knows what that is, like a East African sarong and a sweat. I mean, I just didn't care. I grabbed what I could out of my, you know, just, you, you listen, I tell you, you do not care what you look like when your son's died. And um, I dragged my sheep wagon up into the mountains and it's hunting season. And most of the hunters in Wyoming, I would venture to say, do not share my politics. And so there I am with them. They're absolutely loaded to go to the teeth. I don't care. And I'm in a sheep wagon. They're all there and they're like hardcore camo tents and what have you. And I'm wandering around, howling, like crying my eyes out, just drifting around in the woods and then, you know, locking myself in my sheep wagon and meditating. 
And, you know, I'm, God. anyway, eventually one of them comes up to me and he goes, ma'am, um, I'm a hunter. I was like, yeah, I gathered that guy's just dripping with guns. And he goes, um, and I don't want to shoot you um, if I can help it. So I shoot, I, I hunt at dawn and dusk. So if you could keep your activities to the middle of the day, <laughs> I think we can share this mountain. And then he looks around, he notices my stove isn't properly secured in the sheep wagon, which I've been you know, driving all around with. And, and it turns out he had the tools right there with him. He was like MacGyver. He's like, oh, well, I've got to fix this for you. And so the next thing is he fixes my, my stove. And I, I was so impressed. I go, you know, what's your name? I thank you so much. And he goes, my name's Sean. I'm like, you're, you're amazing. And he goes, well, no, but if you're ugly, you better be useful. <laughs> and then he asked what the hell I was doing up in the mountains in the middle of hunting season. And I said, I lost my son a month ago. And the next thing is, about once a day, I would get a piece of elk meat delivered to me. Um, from different hunters, it got round. Like I ate so much elk. I, I, like I walked out there actually reincarnated as elk. And it was so loving. And so in this loving space, we began to talk about death and responsibility and community. And I realized how close we were, politically like this. But in reality, when it came right down to it, we're now talking about, you know, the nitty gritty stuff. We were right there. And so I would love to write a book that was my love of the people of Wyoming that doesn't just make them whatever the word is, despicable or something, which I hate. I mean, that's immediately so othering. It ends the conversation. They're deplorables, I'm so sorry. And I think that that immediately there, there's no conversation to be had. And trust me, if you asked Sean, who fixed my stove, what he thought of the liberal elites in Jackson, it's probably, if he had the word deplorable, he would use it, but he used a much more catchy and uh, colorful phrase. <laughs> and that's where we are. Where are we ever going to get like that? Let's have a conversation and make, I mean, it doesn't matter that my politics are this. It matters more that I have a sense of humor and compassion. Uh, hi, um, I kind of came in on the end of the talk, but I, I just wondered if you you resonate uh, with for me with uh, Kathleen Norris in Spiritual Geography. Yes, I loved that book. It's one of my favorite. It's on my Are You Her? No, it's on my bookshelf. I, I would have run up and kissed you. Dakota She's... is a really powerful book. I love it, and I love the fact that she, that's Ka Kathleen Norris, wrote a book called Dakota that you should read. That's a really beautiful book about finding spirituality and. And these sort of flyover states. Um, I, I um, have relatives in Gregory, South Dakota. I've been to Lakota Reservation. Um, it's all amazing. Uh, you also sound like Thomas Merton, who says the holiest people around are the Native Americans. And you sound, your experience sounds so much to me like what I discovered in my own grief um, when I lost a dear, dear friend a few years ago, a brother. And it's called Kaddish, and it's a Jewish man uh, finding Leon, uh, I'm sorry, Wizzletier wrote um, his experience of grief, and he discovered within his own faith tradition, which he totally ignored, the, the Jewish faith tradition, he discovered Kaddish. And I adopted his Kaddish for one year, and it's a prayer ritual that is done in community. You're familiar with this? 
are, I just, it just blends so beautifully with the work that you do, or the, what you're saying, and I consider it a work, a work of kindness. Um, I adopted all of that, and it's a prayer ritual three times a day, morning, lunch, and dinner, remembering, crying, and grieving through the whole thing. Um, are you familiar with this at I'm all? I'm not, but it's pretty much what I did. There you are. Yeah. It's, a hum it's deep, in, I believe, and a friend put me on to this. I think it's deep in our DNA to do yeah, that. Yeah, we're born to grieve and we're born to survive grief. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Uh, your stories are very cinematic. Has anyone ever approached you to make a movie? Yes. Uh, yes. Oh. Much to my mother's horror. <laughs> Do you think you'll do it? I, you know what? I have had so many. It, 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 the, Hollywood's very fickle. So, you know, you have people and they're thrilled with your book and then nothing comes of it. So that it mm -hmm. just sort of is mm -hmm. this froth that's yeah. there. But I get on with my life in my yurt. Yeah. Chop wood, carry water. And if they make a movie, fine. If they don't, oh, well. And they'll get I it so it wrong. Happens. I yeah. always find, I mean, the reviews get it so wrong. I'm like, are we reading the, did you read the book I wrote? Mm -hmm. And then you realize, and they didn't get it wrong. And I'm calling the person wrong. That's what they got from the book. They're right. right. I just didn't yeah. see it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you do get to make a movie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Do I have time for one more question or are you? Okay. Yes. What is, what is uh, well, they're farming in Zambia. So they're still on it. And the farm in Zimbabwe went back to a few years ago, and it's great. There's about 12 or 14 families living on it, and managing to make a way better go of it than we ever did. It was such a terrible farm. I mean, it was so brave to even try. Um, and so it was a really healing visit to go back there and see that, no, this land has been used by the people you know, whose families are from there for generations and generations before our brief really disastrous attempt to try and sort it out and put tobacco in it. You know, they're growing food crops and a little bit of tobacco. And um, it was a, yeah. I have a very different relationship with nostalgia than my mother does. Yeah. She has a disease of nostalgia. Me, I'm glad Rhodesia's over. She goes, you don't remember socialism the way I do. I'm the one who had to come up with the marvelous meals. You and your father could just sit around saying how wonderful it was that we were all so poor together. <laughs> Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.